to the podcast. This podcast is where sermons, messages, and other presentations from Christ Community Church in Brawley, California are posted. For more information, you can go to www.cccciv.org and select the Brawley campus or find us on the App Store. Let's get started. Ephesians chapter 6. You know, I, I didn't realize how spiritual people in Brawley are. You guys fast for a week before you dedicate your children. That's pretty impressive. I'm going to have to go back and challenge the El Central campus with that one. So today, uh, we're beginning a new series, Spiritual Warfare. And what this video was, is it was a video of a lot of intense, actual, physical warfare. And the thing is, we, we recognize physical warfare because we can see it with our eyes, we can feel it, we can hear it. We can sense it with our five senses, but there is a spiritual battle that is happening all around us that is just as real. We just can't see it. We just can't feel it. Or we feel it, right? If we're honest, we do feel it. We just can't see it. We can't sense it with our five senses, but it's happening, and it is just as real, and it is more deadly and more dangerous. The Apostle Paul was a man who met opposition time and time again throughout the course of his ministry. From the moment he was transformed on that road to Damascus, there was roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. And at the end of his ministry, he spends two years, the end of his life really, he spends two years chained to a Roman soldier day in and day out. Day after day, they would switch guards. They would come in and change the guard ever so often. But he would remain tied to that Roman soldier 24 hours a day. And it was in those moments that that, that all of the, the reality of the warfare that he had endured really set in and the Lord spoke to him that your life has been like a battle. And so he's chained to this Roman soldier and he, as he recounts the things that have happened in his life, he wrote to the church in Corinth, he says, is there anyone that has been more of a servant than myself? I've been beaten more times than I can remember. He says, five times I was lashed, I was whipped by, 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 my, by, the, by the Romans five times. 39 lashes he took five times. I was beaten with rods three times. I was stoned once and left for dead. I went without food. I went without clothing. I went without shelter. I was cold. I was alone. I was persecuted by my countrymen. I was persecuted by the Gentiles. Time after time after time, I came up against opposition just because I wanted to bring the truth, this message of hope to people that I had found. But I met opposition. I met these strongholds. I met these attacks. And so chained to this Roman soldier, 24 hours a day, it's as though the Lord speaks to Paul to encourage Paul, but we have these words to encourage us today as well. That, hey, maybe, just maybe, Paul, all of that that you experienced in the flesh, all of that hardship, all of that persecution, the scars that he literally bore in his body, Maybe all of that wasn't so much a physical fight as it was a spiritual fight. And in that moment, he's chained to this Roman soldier and he thinks in his mind, that man is not my enemy. There is an enemy behind the scenes, behind the curtain that is pulling strings. And I can't maybe see what is happening, but the battle is bigger than what I can recognize. And I have to look for the Lord for direction in the midst of this battleground. I have to have a plan if I'm going to be able to be fit for war. So in Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to read just a few verses beginning in verse 10. 
Paul writes, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in that evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, dot, dot, dot. And then he goes into the explanation of the spiritual covering, the, the spiritual armor, the armor of God that we as believers need to clothe ourselves with. Now, we're not going to go into that armor today. We're studying that at the main campus every Wednesday night. Each week, we're taking a different piece of that armor, and we're breaking that down. I know you guys have a class here on Wednesdays, but if you want to watch that later on on the streams uh, or on Facebook or on the app or whatever so that you can see what you need to be equipped with so that you know what your plan needs to be in order to withstand this, this battle that is raging all around you, then I suggest you watch that. But what I want to focus in on here this morning, what I want us to see first of all, is before we can wage an effective warfare, we have to know who the enemy is. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but modern warfare has changed. It's a lot easier when you know who sent the bomb, but it's very difficult when no one takes responsibility and it's this sect and it's this group within this country. And so do we hold the whole country accountable? How do we find the people who have attacked us, right? It's, it's a lot more easy to wage war when you know who your enemy is. So we're gonna be, begin by looking at who our enemy is, the source of our conflict. If you have your outlines, I want you to pull those out and begin taking notes. The source of conflict. To begin with, you have to understand that you do have a spiritual adversary. There is The, the word adversary literally is a foe, it's an enemy, it's a rival. Satan's name, the very word Satan, the name Satan means an adversary, one who stands against you. One who takes up stance against you that is across the battlefield staring you down. An opponent, an enemy, a foe, a rival. But what you have to see first and foremost is that before he's your enemy, before he's your adversary, he was an adversary of God. If you will write these verses down, you can read them later because we don't have time to dig into each of these. But Ezekiel chapter 28, you can read how God created Satan as a beautiful angelic being. And, and, and the description of him, it says that he's clothed in splendor, like he's clothed with, with these radiant diamonds and these precious gems and that he's beautiful and he was set upon the mountain of God. And many Bible scholars believe that it was Lucifer, the son of morning, the son of brightness, the son of the star that was in charge of leading all of the angels angelic host, the armies of heaven, into worship of God. And so there's this description of, of Satan in, in Ezekiel chapter 28, his, his splendor, his glory, his beauty, his radiance. But he got puffed up in his, in, his, in his thinking of himself. And because of his great beauty, he swelled to the point to where he said, why would I lead others into worship of God when I could receive that worship myself? Isaiah chapter 14, you can write that down, verses 12 through 14, read it later. He says in his heart, does Satan, he says, I will ascend to the throne of God. I will sit on that mountain. I will be the one to receive this worship. And the scripture says, because you exalted yourself, you will be cast, you have fallen from your place. Revelation chapter 12, you can see how the dragon was cast down with a third of the angels because of pride and arrogance of heart. 
And so the original foe, the original adversary that Satan had in mind was God. He wanted God's position. He wanted to be Lord. He wanted to receive that worship. He thought that he was more important than God Almighty. And it is the same spirit that runs through every single one of us in our flesh every single day when we exalt our our, our own hearts, we exalt ourselves to God's throne and try to take God's throne from him. God and God alone deserves that throne. God and God alone deserves that worship. Every moment we take trying to rob God of worship, we commit the same sin that Satan did when he says, I deserve that place. This world revolves around me. And we think of our own hurts and our own attitudes and our own desires before we think of what God wants in our lives. The same exact attitudes. The scripture's clear. It says in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. If we fall into the same sin as Satan, we will end up in the same place, fallen. And so this influence that Satan had, this heart that became puffed up, this prideful arrogance that took root in his heart in heaven, he's cast to the earth, and with him comes that influence over the world and over all of man. And the scripture now declares that Satan is the God of this age. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says this, And even if our gospel is veiled, or if it is hidden, even if our gospel is hidden to those who are perishing, in their case, the God of this world has blinded their, the minds of unbelievers. Why do people not understand grace? Why can't people accept grace and mercy and forgiveness? Because the God of this age has blinded their minds towards the truth. He has that same influence here today, the God of this age. The scripture says in Ephesians chapter two that he's the prince of the air. Listen to this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. You were following after Satan. You followed Satan into sin time and time and time again. And it's no wonder that your life is in shambles and in ruins and being destroyed because you followed Satan into his destruction. In John chapter 16, verse 11, Jesus referred to Satan as the God of this world, the ruler of this world. And so the original beef was between God and Satan. Satan wanted God's position, wanted God's throne. He was cast to this world, but there's no possible way for Satan to ever come against the Lord. So what does he do? Why does he hate you so much? Why is he your foe and your enemy? Because you were created in God's image. And every time he sees you, he despises the image of God that is in you. He can't destroy the Lord, but he can destroy you. He can destroy God's fingerprints and his handprints and, and what he wants to do in your life. He cannot touch the Lord, but he can touch you. Why is your life struggling? Because God hates, or excuse me, Satan hates the God that is in you. I remember the first time I held my son and I looked down at him uh, with such pride and I looked over his face and I could see my reflection looking back up at me. And if you see child's pictures or a picture of me and a picture of him, it's hard to tell the difference at certain ages in life. Now, now by this time, it's completely different because he's like three feet taller, he's got more hair, he's more handsome. There's no, you can definitely tell the difference today. But there was a time when we, when we were both five, six, seven, eight years old, it's difficult to tell the difference between the two of us. I was so proud to see my reflection when I looked into my son. And this is the same sense that God has when he looks down at you. You were made in his image. 
Now, what the enemy wants to do, what the rival wants to do, is wants to rob God of that joy. He wants to mar the image of God that is on you. He wants to distort it and to destroy it so that God will lose some of the glory, that he does, some of that, that pleasure, some of that worship that is due his name. And we fall into this trap over and over again. Jesus said this in John chapter 10, verse 10. You know this verse well. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And then Jesus says, but I came that they might have life and that they might have life more abundantly. What does it mean to steal? It means to rob. Listen to me. The enemy robs us of joy, robs our homes of peace and of unity, robs us of blessings. This is why he's here. He's here to take these things from us. There's a spiritual war that is happening and sometimes we're not aware of it, but he's there to rob you of God's blessings. He comes to steal and to kill. The word kill means to slaughter. It means to have a group of people that are lined up and to slay them all down at once. He wants to destroy God's people so that he can destroy God's image. He comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. The word means to ruin or to annihilate to completely wipe off the face of the earth. In the scriptures, in the book of Revelation chapter nine, verse 11, Satan is referred to as Abaddon or Apollyon. The word means destroyer, that his, one of his names is destroyer. The destroyer of relationships. He's the destroyer of fruitfulness. He's the destroyer of Christian witness and testimony. He's the destroyer of hope in our communities. Why? Because he wants to get to God. He could care less about you. You're just a pawn. He could care less one way or another. He just wants to break God's heart as he gets to you. Are you following me? This is why you have an adversary. This is why there's someone so bent against you. Now, here's the beautiful truth of it all. You can see these moments throughout scripture where persecution came and where spiritual warfare happened. And take the disciples, for instance, in the book of Acts. They just get saved, or they just receive the spirit, I should say. They begin to go out throughout Jerusalem preaching the gospel. The religious leaders hear this message and they want to come against it because their, their whole livelihood is under attack. The scribes and the Pharisees, those religious people. And so they bring them bound and they beat them and throw them into prison. And so the enemy wants to persecute. The enemy wants to stifle God's word, wants to quench God's spirit. They're thrown into prison, and in prison, they rejoice. They sing praise to God, saying, I'm so grateful that I was found worthy to suffer for his name. And here's the outcome of that persecution, of that spiritual attack, is because there's such intense persecution in, in Jerusalem, the disciples disperse and go all throughout the regions of Asia Minor, and the gospel spreads further. What's the moral of the story? God wins. Take Paul, for instance. Here he is chained to a Roman soldier. Why? Because he's been beaten for speaking the truth, for preaching the gospel. And now he's had to appeal all the way to Caesar. He's gone through all of the ranks of the Roman government and he's preached the gospel all along the way. And so the enemy wants to silence Paul and all it did is spread the gospel further so much so that we have prison epistles that were written from his time when he was chained to to Roman soldiers so that we might find faith and, and encouragement even today. The moral of the story is God wins. Take the apostle John, for instance. We call him the apostle of love. Persecuted for his faith. They take him, they dip him in a vat of boiling oil. He doesn't die. 
They bring him out. They don't know what to do with him. So they exile him to an island called Patmos. And there on that island of Patmos, God gives John this amazing revelation, we call it, the book of Revelation, this amazing picture of what's going to be happening in the end of days. And what happens? God's people are encouraged through that vision even today. God's word is in our hands because of that. The moral of the story is God wins. It doesn't matter what intense persecution you're experiencing today from spiritual warfare, spiritual attack, what's happening in your homes, in your families, in our schools, in our nation. I know the end and God will win. And we are on the winning side. So we have an adversary. He hates you because he hates the God he sees on you, the God he sees in you. That's why you're under attack. You have to know who you're fighting if you're gonna be effective in this battle. Are we following? So we have an adversary, Satan, the name adversary, but we also have an accuser. The word devil, the name devil, literally means one who accuses, one who spreads slander or spreads lies. In Zechariah chapter three, you can write it down, you can read this later, God gives Zechariah this vision of the high priest of the children of Israel standing before the Lord, and there he is clothed in his vestments, in his garments as the high priest, but they're soiled, they're dirty, he, he looks disgusting, and at the, at the right hand, Satan is there accusing Joshua, in essence, Joshua standing on behalf of the people, the representative of the people, Satan there looking at Joshua and accusing Joshua of of false worship and, and idolatry and sinfulness and wickedness and vileness and even his clothing reflects it. But in that same scripture, it says that the Lord stands there and the Lord says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Do you see his disgusting, vile garments? I'm going to remove those and I'm gonna put fresh, clean garments on the priest, on the people. I'm gonna give him a new turban. He will be cleansed. He will be made whole. But the enemy stands there accusing. In Revelation chapter 12, it says that the devil accuses the saints day in and day out, day and night. He stands before the Lord trying to bring accusation after accusation, reason after reason why you don't deserve to get to heaven. Jesus called Satan the father of lies in John chapter eight, verse 44. He said this, he says, when he lies, speaking of Satan, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Truth be told, Satan doesn't have to lie about me. He's correct. I am dirty. There's no, I am dirty. I am sinful. I am a wicked person. The thoughts and the intents of my heart, God has to, my, the only chance that I have to stand in the presence of a holy God is that he removes those vestments of, of, of taintedness and gives me fresh, clean garments. He doesn't have to lie. But here's the thing, the scripture says this in 1 John chapter two, it says, but if anyone does sin, if anyone is dirty, if anyone is vile, if anyone's clothed with that, those dirty garments, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Yes, we have an adversary, yes, we have an accuser, but you know what, we also have an advocate and his name is Jesus. The word advocate is the root word that we get for Holy Spirit in the English. It's parakletos, it's one who comes alongside of, one who comes to comfort, one who speaks words of truth and of peace, who whispers in our ear, yes, he's slandering you, yes, he's bringing accusation, but I'm here to stand in your place to speak on your behalf. That's an amazing truth that is liberating for me. You see, I know that in me, in this flesh, there's nothing good that dwells. 
I agree with the scripture that would say in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all. Who can know it? Yes, Lord, that's true. Uh, That's who I am. Yes, Satan, yes, enemy, adversary, accuser, that is who I am. But I have an advocate. I have one who will, will remove these robes and clothe me fresh and clean. See, again, Satan is a liar, but it's useless for Satan to try to lie to God. You understand that, right? Whatever truth he brings up, that's one thing, but he cannot lie to God about you because God knows, God sees. He cannot lie to God any more than you can keep a secret from God. But here's the thing, if he's called a liar and the father of lies, who do you think he's lying to? To you and to me. And so day in and day out, he tries to convince you of your worthlessness. See, there you are falling into that same lust again. Why, why even repent? You're just gonna do it again tomorrow. There you go again, dealing with that same addiction. You, you, you say you're sorry over and over again. Well, I'm tired of sorry. When are you just gonna give up and walk away? You're never going to be good enough. You're never gonna be worthy of the cross. You're never gonna be worthy of standing in his presence. You're only ever going to be dirty and vile and wicked. And the enemy lies over and over and over to you. You have to take those things and you have to say, no, this is not truth. This is a lie. Why? Because the scripture tells me, Romans chapter eight, that you know what? There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, I might deserve being declared guilty, but there was one who took my guilt in my place. And now I am not condemned. Now I have freedom in Christ. You have to know and take these these thoughts captive. You have to understand that though the enemy will speak to you, you're gonna be shackled to that sin forever. There's no hope for you. If you are in Christ, anyone who's been set free by the Son is free indeed, yes? John chapter eight, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And you say to the enemy, I'm not shackled by my sin. Jesus has set me free. I'm not condemned by the law. Jesus went for me. 2 Corinthians 5.17, one of our favorite verses at this church. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And the enemy says, you're never going to change. You're always only ever going to be this way. You need to tell the enemy, no, the Bible tells me, God's word tells me that I am new. That the old man is dead and gone and I've been raised something new. Don't let the enemy lie to you a moment longer. So in this battle that we engage in, you have to understand who your enemy is, who the adversary and the accuser is if you're going to be successful. Second thing I want you to understand about the enemy is you need to know what his schemes are. The schemes of the enemy. The first particular way I want to look at this or what I want to see the enemy use is deception. Look at what it says in Ephesians chapter 10, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter Uh, 6 verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The word schemes means crafts. It means strategy. It means methods. That he has a method to attack you. That he's figuring out the best way to bring opposition against you. The scripture describes the Satan is this in 1 Peter chapter 5. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary your enemy, your foe, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 
The roaring lion in the pride of lions is one that is older and more advanced in age. He's not as fast as he used to be. He's not as strong as he used to be. His teeth have even been ground down. He's not an effective hunter. So what the roaring lion in the pride does is he hides in the tall grass until the, the, the prey approaches and he lets out this boisterous roar to scare the herd and to scare them into the direction where the young virile lions are waiting to attack. The ones that are really truly deadly are waiting to pounce on them. The roaring lion has no, uh, has, has no control over the situation. He can't chase them down. All he has is his roar. He's all bark and no bite. He's deceiving you. He plays a good part, doesn't he? And he lets out his roar and we have seasons of doubt and seasons of frustration and seasons of anger and seasons of bitterness and he scares us right into our death trap. The scripture over and over again talks about how there's a snare of the enemy that we have to be careful not to fall into his snares that he baits us to trick us, to deceive us into sin. Over and over again, we fall into these same issues. You know, it, it, I don't know if any of you have ever tried to diet or not, but do you realize that when you start to diet, you're surrounded by delicious foods all of a sudden, right? The, the, it, it just happens, right? And, and that's not necessarily the enemy trying to attack you, but you know what? He does the same thing. When you say, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop giving into this temptation of lust, you're gonna get an email. There's gonna be a commercial there's gonna be something on the TV that you have to flee from. I'm gonna stop giving in to this addiction and all of a sudden your old friends come around. I'm gonna stop lying and all of a sudden there's something that you really need to cover up. Right? That all, the, the enemy wants to bait you. He wants to pull you away. Why? Not because he cares about you at all. Not because he wants you on his team. He doesn't want God to have you. He's jealous. And he'll do whatever he can to break God's heart. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. You can't be ignorant of his designs, of his game plan, of his schemes, of his methods, of his strategy. You have to wake up. Don't let him outwit you. Listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It says, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will, uh, or by your thoughts, you will be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That just like the enemy deceived Eve and led her astray, that you can be deceived by your thoughts. That your thoughts can lead you astray from the Lord. That that's the enemy's ploy. That's his plan is to draw you away. Satan is really, really good at deception. So much so that the scripture says this of him in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. It looks good on the outside. It looks attractive. It looks legit. It looks like the real deal. But the only way that you can identify an imposter a fake, a counterfeit, as if you're familiar with what the real thing looks like. You see, when, when, the, when, when people are trained to be able to identify counterfeit money, they don't study counterfeits, they study the real thing. Because if you know the real thing, you'll be able to identify what a counterfeit looks like. 
If you want to make sure that you're not deceived by the Lord, led astray by your thoughts, led astray by that temptation, that you don't allow his roar to chase you in the wrong direction, you have to understand what the voice of God sounds like. You have to hear him speaking so that you're not led in the wrong direction. The scripture even says, Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, even if possible, the elect. There'll be those in the church that, man, it sounds like they're preaching a good word. Man, it sounds like that's a good idea. We really do need to do that for the community wow, that social justice issue really is intent. Well, that really is what is needed. And it sounds really good, but is it of God or is it not? The enemy even wants to deceive and to lead astray the elect. He wants to pluck you from God's hand. He wants to rob God of the glory that God deserves for your salvation. You have to be careful who you allow to lead you in this life. During the plague of the the, the bubonic plague, the Black Death, they called it in Europe, there was a fable that arose called the Pied Piper. Are you familiar with this fable? And the fable goes like this, that there was a, a, an issue with rats in this community, and so they hired the Pied Piper, who had this ability to play a flute and to kind of hypnotize the rats, and he would lead them out of the city and, and lead the, the rats away so that the people would be spared and that they wouldn't have this disease hanging over their city anymore. And so they hire the Pied Piper, they agree to a price, the Pied Piper plays his pipe, leads all of the rats outside the city, the city's delivered from rats, he comes back, but they refuse to pay. So the Pied Piper uses his pipe and he plays a, a, a hypnotic tune and he leads all of their children out of the city to their death. Why? You gotta be careful who you follow. Satan's like that Pied Piper. He's playing his flute, we're hearing the tune and a lot of us are following him to death right off a cliff. Who are you listening to? Who are you allowing to feed you? Whose influence are you under? This is what it says in First John chapter five, it says, we know, that there are, or we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in power of the evil one, lies in the power of the evil one, literally lies under the sway of the wicked one. They're under his influence. So much of the world is under the influence of Satan being led to destruction, being deceived. The, the pipe is being played and they're following to their death. Wake up. And we need to tell people to wake up. Stop listening to that melodious tune. Stop listening to that flute being played and follow the Lord and the Lord alone. So Satan is good with deception, but I also want you to see that Satan is good and the enemy uses distraction. In this text, verse 12, Paul wrote, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Paul is tied to this Roman soldier and he says, you know what, this man is not my enemy. You know what, in your marriage, broken relationship, your husband, your wife is not your enemy. There's an enemy that is pulling the strings behind the curtain. In that broken relationship with your, your family member, that person is not your enemy. There's an enemy that is trying to keep unity from your home, peace from your home. That Frustration you have at work with your boss or your coworker, that person is not your enemy. There's an enemy that is pulling the strings somewhere else. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but the enemy wants us to become distracted 
by this physical confrontation, by this person that stands across from us. And the enemy's doing the same thing in their life that he's doing in your life. You're closer, you're more similar than you think. Don't allow the enemy to distract you. How many of us have become distracted by an offense? Someone has hurt us or broken our hearts in some way and we're so focused on that hurt that we don't see that the enemy is the one who's winning. That the, the, the longer we put off forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation, the more days the enemy has in conquering. We need to humble ourselves and say, God, I'm not gonna allow this offense to distract me from what is happening in the spiritual realm and I'm not gonna let the enemy win not one day longer. I've spent enough days like this. Listen to what the scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse five. It says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Is that thought, is that hurt, is that bitterness, is that anger that you're holding on to, is that there from God or is it there from the enemy? You need to stop and think just for a moment. Wait, just take, remove yourself from the situation and say, now let me think about this just for a moment. I, am I really being led by the spirit in this or is this the enemy working? Is this my flesh? Where is this thought coming from? Because if you allow the enemy to pull those strings and to influence you and to pervert your thought process, you're gonna end up with a destroyed relationship, a destroyed marriage, a destroyed fruitfulness, a destroyed testimony or witness in your life. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Wait just a second, where is this thought coming from? Is it worth my feeling offended? Is it worth my holding on to this bitterness? Is it worth my holding on to this grudge? Your enemy is not the person standing across from you. Your enemy is your adversary, Satan. I don't know if any of you have ever been to a really good magic show, but the magician's greatest trick, right, his greatest friend is the friend of deception. He creates a diversion over here, right? A pretty girl and she's dancing around and twirling her hands and doing all of this stuff over here. And over here, you're not watching, right? There's nothing magical about what is happening, right? He's just distracting you over here so that he can make you think and believe what he wants you to believe over here. This is what the enemy does in our lives all of the time. He gets your attention off of what he's doing behind the scenes, the strings that he's pulling. He distracts you with this over here so that he can make you believe and think what he wants you to believe and think. You have to take every thought captive. Wait, is this consistent with God's nature? Is this consistent with what I know of his spirit? Is this what his word teaches me? Or is this coming from somewhere else? Listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses three and four, right before that verse. It says, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. Listen, this battle is not in the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to pull down strongholds, to destroy strongholds. We cannot fight a spiritual fight in the flesh. A spiritual battle has to be waged in the spirit. Who is your enemy? Don't let him deceive you. Don't let him distract you any longer. Listen to what it says here. It says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, 
against the authorities. Now, many Bible scholars believe that there are actually demonic forces. Again, when Satan fell from heaven, the scripture says in in Revelation chapter 12 that when he fell, he convinced a third of God's angels that had been created to fall to the earth with him. And so now there are a third of the angels, fallen angels, demons now, that are set out to perform his will, to, to, to carry out Satan's plan. Right, And so there are many Bible scholars who believe that there are demons that are actually assigned to world leaders, people in positions of authority, to distract them and to deceive them, to get them to do the enemy's will. Are you following me? So what I want you to see here when we look at this list, there's a ranking system. The enemy's ploy, the enemy's schemes are very well organized. It's orderly. And if there's ever going to be a chance for you to stand against them, you have to have a plan in place. You can't just hope that that, that you'll make it through. You've got to understand the way that he works and then you have to combat that by clothing yourself the way God calls you to clothe yourself. So he says there that there are rulers, there are authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil and heavenly places. And so again, Bible, uh, Bible scholars believe that there are even demons assigned the specific task of infiltrating our culture with wickedness and with sinfulness. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Look at our culture. Do you realize what the state of California has mandated be taught in our classrooms? The, the sexually deviant lifestyles, the questions of gender, whether or not you can, it's okay for you if, if you're a boy to believe you're a girl and to live as a girl. These things are, are being, from our state legislature, saying this is what we will teach our children. Our school. State college system has said that there needs to be an abortion providers at each state college. This is wickedness. How is this possibly happening? There's somebody pulling strings behind, because it doesn't even make sense. It's not, it's not even logical, but yet it's happening. How does this happen? There are spiritual forces and wickedness that is at play infiltrating our culture with sin and wickedness to mar and to destroy God's image in people that were created in his image. And we let this happen over and over and over again. We become distracted by these things. This, 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 uh, stats show 60 million abortions since Roe versus Wade was, uh, was, was heard in 1973. 60 million babies aborted. That's wicked. How does that happen? There's somebody pulling the strings. Distractions in our culture, the, the rampant pornography. I, I read this statistic that... And this is, you can go to the Conqueror series. It's a website. It's about uh, helping men and women find victory over the temptations of lust and and sinfulness in their lives. And the the statistics show that the pornography industry generates more income than the NFL, Major League Baseball, uh, and and NBA combined generates more income. Not only that, it says that the pornography industry generates more income than ABC, NBC, and CBS combined. That's how rampant sinfulness is in our culture. And not only that, it's infiltrated the church. The holiness of the church has been infiltrated by the enemy who's putting in this wickedness. 68% of Christian men admit to regularly watching pornography. 68%. 50% of pastors. 33% of Christian women the age of 25 or below admit to regularly watching pornography. That's what the statistics show. We are being distracted. The enemy is showing us something over here 
right? To distract us from the real destruction that he's trying to bring about in our lives. The death, the ruin, the annihilation. Look at this dangling, beautiful object. We're being deceived. We're being distracted. We're following down this course. And here's the thing is the distraction doesn't actually have to just be blatant sin. You realize how many people stop coming to church during football season because they stay at home to watch their team play at 10 o'clock? Truth. This is truth. The enemy is just as content with you being addicted to pornography as ditching church to watch a football game. Why? Because either way, it robs God of the worship that is due his name. How many families have been distracted by hobbies or soccer or baseball or Pop Warner and they're just being dragged away, dance classes and uh, you know, cheer practices and all of these things that just infiltrate and choke out family time and choke out church time. And the enemy is pleased as can be. Why? Because we're deceived and we're distracted from God's glory. Listen to what Paul wrote to Timothy. He says, again, he uses this analogy of warfare quite often. He says this, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. You're in a war. Don't worry about civilian pursuits. Don't worry about practices or football. You need to keep your heart set upon the Lord. This is what the author of Hebrews said in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says that we we should lay aside every sin and weight and distraction Deception that so easily ensnares us. The enemy's trying to bait us and to trap us. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Be fixed on Jesus, not distracted by the world or by sin or by wickedness. Are you following me? Stop allowing Satan to have a stronghold or a foothold in your life. So in the midst of this text, there are two commands that I want to look at. The first command is to be strong. Look at this again, verse 10 of Ephesians chapter six. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. The source of strength in the believer's life is the Lord and the Lord alone. The scriptures make it clear that we can only find our source of strength in God's provision. To Joshua, who is tasked with the incredible responsibility of leading the children of Israel into the promised land upon the death of Moses. The Lord says to Joshua, have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Why should you be strong? Why should you have no fear? Because I'm with you, God says. Listen to what God says to Solomon when Solomon was tasked with building a temple that was worthy of the worship of Yahweh. And and, and David writes this to his son who has this incredible task. He says, "Be, be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed for the Lord your God, even my God is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until the work or the service of the house of the Lord is finished. Why should you be strong? Why should you have courage? Because God is with you. Listen to what the Lord says to Isaiah 
to a people. He speaks through the prophet Isaiah to the children of Israel, to a people who are anxious because they're, they're being persecuted and they're, they're being led astray. It says, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. God will come to you. You don't need to be afraid. You can be strong. God is with you to Joshua. God is with you to Solomon. God is with you. God will come to you to Isaiah. Listen to what he says to the prophet Haggai when the people come out of their exodus, or excuse me, out of their, uh, out of their captivity, they come back to the promised land. He says this, be strong, all the people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. There's a promise in scripture. And the promise of scripture is that God is with his people. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of trials, in the midst of spiritual warfare and attack, you can be strong and take great courage and fear not because God is with you. Listen to what Paul said. Again to Timothy, he says this, at first, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me. I was all alone. I was imprisoned, I was taken captive because I was preaching the gospel and there was no one there to encourage me, no one come to stand by my side. I was utterly, completely alone. All deserted me, may it not be charged against them. Verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through, um, uh, through, the, through me the message might be fully proclaimed to all of the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth, the roaring lion's mouth. I was rescued because the Lord came and stood by me and strengthened me. The promise of scripture is that God is with you. The attack may be strong. The attack may seem great. The attack may seem insurmountable. The mountain in front of you might seem like there's no way you can scale that mountain. The health need, the relationship need, the financial need, the attack of the enemies may seem hopeless to you, but it is not hopeless because God is with you. Paul would write this, know this verse well, in Philippians chapter four, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Here's the thing, you know what? Your trial, your persecution, your relationship strain, your spiritual attack, it is impossible for you. But it's not impossible for the God that is with you. The source of your strength is God and God alone, but not only is he the source of your strength, he's also the supply for your strength. See, God is not only with the believer, but God is in the believer. To the church in Ephesus, Paul said that you should be being filled with the Spirit. He says, don't be drunk with wine, be drunk with the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit. And that's, that's uh, uh, in the tense, in the Greek, it's a tense that means keep being filled. You're not filled once. It's not like you go and fill up your car one time and you're good forever. You have to constantly keep your car full of gas if you want it to go anywhere. The same is true of the Spirit. You have to fill your cup. You have to fill yourself with the Spirit. Allow the Spirit to fill you to overflowing. This is your supply of strength. Jesus said this in John chapter seven, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. He says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink and I'm gonna fill you with my spirit. 
So much so that it's going to bubble up and flow out of you. This is your source of strength. And in the book of Acts, Jesus said that you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. See, the Spirit in the life of the believer, the Spirit is with us to strengthen us. The Spirit is in us to strengthen us. But then the Spirit is upon us to strengthen us. The word upon means to cover with. Just like we're to cover ourselves with the armor of God, God's spirit is to clothe you, to give you strength, to be upon you in that form. Listen to what Paul wrote to that church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter one. This is amazing to me. This is a verse that we're gonna look at this coming Easter. So if you wanna be preparing, I know that's a long way away, but we're gonna use this verse. Listen to this. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? Now, that word power toward, the word toward means inside. So you can read this. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power that is inside us who believe? The same power that worked in Christ and rose him from the grave is the same power that resides in you. Paul says to the church in in Ephesus, finally, be strong in the Lord. The Lord is with you. The Lord is in you. The Lord is upon you. He dwells inside of you. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave right now, it resides within you. What could possibly be impossible for you? when the Spirit of God dwells within you. Now, there may be some impossibilities that man sees. The Lord comes to Jeremiah and says, Jeremiah, I want you to buy this plot of land. And Jeremiah says, the land has been destroyed. The land is worthless. We're in captivity. Why would I buy this land? And God says, is there anything that is too difficult for me? I will bring the people back and I will restore the blessings to the people. You just trust me and go buy the land. God says to Abraham, he says, you're going to have an heir. The heirs of yours are going to be outnumber the sand and the shores. How is this possible, Abraham says. I'm 90 years old. I'm a man well advanced in age. There's no possible way that I could have an heir. And God says to Abraham, is there anything too difficult for me? God comes, an angel of the Lord comes to Mary. It says, Mary, you're going to bear a child. You're going to conceive, and he, he, this will be the son of God that will be put into your womb. She says, how can this be possible? I've never known a man. And God's reply is, is there anything too difficult for me? With man, it's impossible, but there is nothing impossible for me. The warfare that you're experiencing, the hardship that you're surrounded by, enemies encamping all around you, you are able to withstand it, not in the strength of yourself, but in the strength and in the power of his might, the might that is with you, the might that is in you, and the might that is upon you. Do you follow? Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And so we see here, he goes on and he talks about clothing, put on the whole armor of God. Therefore, put on the whole armor of God. You need protection. You need the spirit on you as much as you need the spirit in you. Listen to what it says in Psalm chapter 18. It says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He's my stronghold. When I'm in danger, when I'm being pursued by my enemies, when I'm under spiritual attack or physical attack, I run to my stronghold. I run to my tower. I run to the citadel. I run to that place where I know I will find strength. The Lord is that rock. The Lord is that tower. He is my place of refuge. He is my place of rest, the psalmist writes. 
writes. The scripture says this, Proverbs chapter 30, the rock badgers are a people not mighty, yet they make their home in the cliffs. Psalm 104 verse 18, the high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are refuge for the rock, rock badgers. The rock badgers, they're, they're like little, small little mice-like creatures and they're very susceptible to being preyed upon by birds of prey. But they're smart because when they're in danger, they run to the cracks of the rocks and the predator can't get to them in that place. The spiritual implication for you and for me is that when you're under attack, you need to run to the rock. You need to understand that you aren't strong enough. You need to be clothed in the armor. You need the protection. You need to run to the strong tower. You need to hide in the cracks of the rocks so the predator won't get you. He's your place of comfort and refuge and of rest. So there's this command to be strong, but there's also a command to stand. Read with me again. It says in Verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the devil, or uh, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. The word withstand literally means to resist. You're under attack. You're in a fight, and some of you aren't fighting back. What Paul says here is you need to begin to withstand. You need to start resisting. You need to start pushing back. Sometimes the only way to deal with a bully is to let them know that you will not be bullied any longer. Do you understand what I'm saying? Paul says it's time for you to start withstanding these attacks. Stop running in fear and cowering. You need to draw a line in the sand and you need to start pushing back so the enemy knows you won't take this any longer. Withstand. Listen to what it says here, to resist, James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. When the roaring lion roars with all of his might, and you roar right back in his face, he will cower and he will run. He will flee. You'll withstand him face to face, clothed in the power of God. Not on your own, not in your own strength or your own might, clothed in the power of God. Listen to this. Having done all to stand, stand firm. Stand therefore. The, the word stand firm means to hold your position. It's a military term meaning to hold your position. There's a man by the name of Jack Lucas. Anyone ever heard of this man? During Pearl Harbor, he was 14 years old, but he was already five feet, eight inches tall, weighed 180 pounds. He was a bigger dude than I was at 14 years old. Pearl Harbor happens. He forges his mother's signature and joins the Marines. He goes into training. He's in training for two years. He gets sent uh, over to Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. He's there for a couple of days before he stows away on the first ship leaving the harbor going to the battle of Iwo Jima. At 16 years old, he turns 17 on his way to Iwo Jima. When he's there, they, he, he finally confesses what has happened. He's docked a rank because he's considered AWOL back in Hawaii because he stowed away to go to the fight sooner. He goes on to Iwo Jima, storms the, the, the Iwo Jima with the rest of the troops, and he's in a skirmish, two trenches, 11 Japanese soldiers across from their four, and two grenades are thrown into the trench. Instinctively, at 17 years old, he goes and he jumps on one grenade, buries it under his body in the dirt, in the volcanic ash, buries it, grabs the other grenade, pulls it under his body, and one of the grenades explodes, the other doesn't. 
21 surgeries it takes to bring healing, some sort of, of semblance back to his body. 21, he had over 200 pieces of shrapnel in his body the rest of his life. Why was he willing to do that? Why was he willing to draw a line in the sand? Why was he willing to stand firm? Because that piece of ground, that island was so important to the battle. If the battle of Iwo Jima was lost, we don't know if the B-29s that flew over to drop the atomic bombs could have made it because that's where all of the military bases were for the Japanese fleet. That's where all of their planes were located. If we don't capture Iwo Jima, we lose the war. If we don't draw the line, if we don't stand firm in this position, if we don't stand in this battle, we will lose the war. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying you have to stand firm. You have to hold your ground. Don't be bullied around any longer. If you lose this battle, we lose the war. Having done all to stand firm, Stand therefore, again, he says, stand a third time in the course of maybe 20 words. Stand, that means, stand again, stand. We are called to never retreat and we're called to never surrender. No retreat and no surrender. There's a story, I'll close with this story. Not really even a story, it's truth, it's factual. But the legend of Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms, April, April of 1521, he stands before the religious leaders, he stands before the church, and he says, I'm not backing down from what I've come to know. When I read the scriptures, I believe this to be true. I believe that man is saved by, by faith alone, through grace alone, that there's nothing, there's no works, there's nothing that God, or that the man can do, there's no interaction that needs to happen with the church. We are saved by faith alone, or uh, through faith alone, by grace alone. This is the only way that we are saved. And so he says this, he says, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. I will not compromise on the truth. I will not back down in the face of opposition. Here I stand. I can do no otherwise. A month later, in May of 1521, he has a dream. And in this dream, Satan has this long list. And he's reading from this list all of the sins that Luther has struggled with throughout his life. And Luther is under this intense spiritual attack. Here's this sin again, here's this sin again, here's this sin again, sin, 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 sin. In frustration, Luther stands up and he says, it's all true, all of it, everything that you've written is true, but write down at the end of your list, the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, cleanses me from all sin. And he takes up an ink jar and he throws it at Satan and the ink stain is still at the castle in Wartburg to this day. He says, enough is enough. Now, there's, there's no coincidence that a month before, before all of the religious leaders of the world, the, uh, those in, in, in the, the church, the so-called church, he says, here, I'm making my stand. I'm not gonna be bullied. I'm not gonna be pressured. No spiritual attack will make me change what I know to be true. And a month later, the enemy is attacking him, trying to convince him to move away from that stance. To cower in fear to tuck tail and to run. And Luther says, you know what? Every accusation you can bring against me, every word you can, it's all of it is true. But Jesus has won. 
His blood has cleansed me from it all. And, you, and then when he throws this ink blot splattered on the wall, in this story, he, he recalls this story, Satan fled from him in that moment. That was it. This is what the scripture says, Colossians chapter two. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God has made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, having nailed it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He, he triumphed. Why do we not retreat? Why do we not surrender? Because we've already won. And it isn't us. Jesus has already won. Don't allow the enemy to bait you or to trick you into turning around and retreat. The victory is ours in Christ. He's already won the day. He is a warrior that is worth following into battle. He is one worth being led into the field of battle. The book of Revelation, we have this amazing vision of Jesus, one who's on a white stallion, who's clothed in these amazing vestments. He has a name written on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword with which he strikes down the nations. Here is our champion. Here is our warrior. Here is the one that will lead us to our victory. Why would we ever back down? Why would we ever surrender or retreat when we see the one that leads us in battle? Maybe this morning you've been baited into giving some territory to the enemy that you never should have given. Today you can take it back. Today the Lord would want to remind you that he is the one that is leading the charge. You can have strength and assurance because he is with you, he is in you, he is upon you. There's no excuse for surrender or retreat because he leads the charge. And all you need to do is trust him and follow him into battle. He will not disappoint. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, the power of your word, the truth of your word, and God, the way your word challenges us. Father, may we never become a people that are content to be a puppet. Lord, we are tired of having our strings pulled and being manipulated and deceived and distracted. God, we wanna place our, our eyes upon you. We wanna place our eyes upon the cross. We wanna place our eyes upon an empty tomb. We wanna be reminded of the warrior that leads our charge. And God, we will follow you. We will follow you to the death. We will follow you to the day you take us into your kingdom because you're a warrior that can be trusted. You are a God who can be trusted. And so Lord, we pledge to you once more our allegiance. You have called us into this battle for a purpose. And Lord, we wanna be faithful in the midst of this battle. Lord, use us as your warriors. Use us as your soldiers. We're here. We're here to heed your call. We're here to heed your instructions. So lead us, we pray. In Jesus' name.